Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to Fire Engineering Hump Day Hangout. Uh, I'm very excited about today. Um, it's something I've wanted to do for, for a year or so, and I finally talked the guy into sitting in a hotel lobby at FDIC this year. Um, Bill may or may not have had a beer in his hand. I'm not positive, but I doubt it. But he was, uh, I would ask him if he wanted to come talk about himself because I, I am intrigued by Captain Bill Gustin and uh, his, his influence on the fire service and, and his influence on me. Uh, even as a chief officer when I was in Florida. And I don't think that uh, in the area that most of where traditional training teaches, uh, you know, when I talk about Bill, I don't think enough people know about him um, just due to the, you know, our geographic area. So I'm like, hey, you know, I'm going to do this, you know, this uh, conference with him. I want you to learn about his history, where he came from, his longevity and his uh, connection with uh, firefighters that are even uh, riding rigs today. So one of our founding members of traditions is uh, Pete Lund. And, and one of the things that I always said about Pete uh, was that his ability to have a connection with firefighters. And uh, Bill reminds me so much of that uh, is that, you know, Pete could walk into a firehouse and he'd start at the front of the firehouse and all the young guys would be hanging out there, the 19, 20 year old kids. And, and Pete would have a conversation with that group and it'd be relevant. It'd be about what's happening today in the fire service, how those kids are responding to calls today. And then he would, you know, get to the middle of the firehouse. There'd be the officers. And then he would come back in the office with me as the chief. And he could talk to all three different levels of, the, of anybody's organization. And what I see that is the same thing with Bill. I mean, um, you know, we've got a lot of couple questions for Bill today to, to go through. But, you know, a lot of us talking about uh, his history, how one, how he got to Miami-Dade, and then all the things that have gone on in Miami-Dade and and then also talking about his, you know, his teaching methods, which I think are are unique. I mean, there's there's very few instructors like Bill uh, that are out there. So, um, look, uh, I want to get started because I want to hear about it all. And I want to welcome Bill Gustin to the Hump Day Hangout. Obviously, he has his own. Uh, I forget which Wednesday that is, Bill, but. It'll be it'll be next week. The next week. So you got the second week. So that's why I Big Dan Shaw week, can't yeah. come on. So. <clears throat> But so look, I got a couple questions here for you, bud, and, and I want you to, uh, you know, I know you elaborate. I probably want to have to ask follow up questions. So, well, can I can I say this first? I had the honor of, I had the honor of meeting Pete Lund, either Rescue One or Rescue. I believe Rescue One, Rescue Two, Rescue Two. Yeah. I had the honor of meeting him, and then when he retired, he became a volunteer with Kentland. Correct? Yep. Yeah, and then I believe he 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 passed away on the job. Yeah, in Woodmere, New York, yeah, in 2005, yeah. Oh, okay. He wasn't at uh, Kent Lydon at the time. No, no, he was a life member at Woodmere, at Woodmere, New York, and I see. past chief yeah. and uh, was running the line, man. He was uh, he was doing it, so he yep. was at a working fire, so. Yeah, well, well, thanks for having me on, Chief. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, I hold you and um, Bill Peters from Jersey City in high regard as the two foremost apparatus specking subject matter experts in the fire service, as far as I'm concerned, in my experience anyway. I appreciate that. So look, man, let's, uh, I want to get into it because I know, I know that you have a lot to share with us. So tell me, uh, you know, I, I have my first experience to the fire service and how I was exposed to it. And why don't you tell, tell us yours and, and where that was at? 
Well, I guess I guess it was in the blood, in the DNA. Um, my grandfather, that was my mother's father, was a, uh, a captain on the Chicago Fire Department. Uh, he came on as a driver. That means this kind of driving. And then from there, he became an engineer. Remember, a big part of steam is you got to keep the boiler running and you have to keep it running during the summertime. It's sweltering. And uh, he finally uh, transferred over to the regular fire department because those, those were separate ranks. And he ended up retiring as captain of engine 117, which is which is still there today. So I never met the man, but there's my parents have told me that there was some mannerisms uh, that, that that was in the blood. And of course, my dad was a lieutenant on the Chicago Fire Department. He got on and uh, he was with the insurance patrol. Uh, which would be like the New York Fire Patrol, Salvage Patrol, uh, after World War II, and then got on the regular fire department in 1948. So um, I had that exposure to the fire service and uh, couldn't wait for my next visit to the firehouse uh, when my dad would go there for some reason to pick up something or whatever the reason was. He, he was... Um, uh, I was anxious to go. I, uh, we talked about before we came on about the snorkel one. And as a kid, I, you know, vaguely remember in the early, early sixties or late fifties, uh, being in the basket of that apparatus and, um, getting a ride as a little kid, you know, and what a thrill for a, for a little kid. So, uh, I was hooked, hooked at a real early age. And I uh, could never imagine myself doing anything else. Now, Bill, did you guys live, did your family live in the city? Okay, that's, that's, that's a contentious itch issue, which I will fully disclose. By ordinance, every employee of the city of Chicago is to live in the city. But they turned a blind eye. And my dad got away with it as hundreds of other guys did until 1976. So he moved out to the suburbs in Wheaton, Illinois, where I became a paid on call uh, volunteer. And uh, he stayed there since uh, from about 54 until 76. And then uh, at the time, Mayor Daly said, hey, you know the rules. I'll give you three months to move back in. So, but I grew up and went to school in Wheaton, Illinois, and my dad made the commute. So, but then did he move back in the, the did he move back yes, in the city? He did. Oh, yeah. Yes, he, yes, he did. And it, the ironic thing is he moved to the South side of Chicago and he was at that time, he's just about ready to retire. He was uh, at O'Hare airport. Oh. And um, it took him further to drive from his home in uh, South Side of Chicago to O'Hare than it would be if he had remained in Wheaton. But those were the rules. And he never once complained. He knew sooner or later the day would come and uh, we would have to we would have to move. But by that time, uh, I had already taken a position with the Naperville Fire Department as a, a full time. Uh, firefighter and Naperville and Wheaton are both uh, 20 miles west of Chicago. Uh, 
Naperville was on the Chicago Burlington and Quincy Railroad line, and Wheaton was on the Chicago Northwestern. All those western suburbs were built along railroad tracks coming out of Chicago. Now, how long did your dad uh, serve in the Chicago Fire Department? 33 years. Yeah, he, uh, his, his fondest memories were of Squad 2. Uh, when he first got on the job, uh, he was a candidate. That's what they call a rookie or a probie. He was a candidate at truck three, uh, which at the time was one of the very first metal and hydraulically uh, powered area ladders. Chicago, they're not really big on innovation. They bought a fleet in 1954. They bought a fleet of FWDs, four-wheel drive, with wood, a two-section wood, 85-foot ladder. They, they, they bought a whole fleet of them. You'd have to crack that thing. Now, it was spring-loaded, so you could, you know, you'd press a lever. Oh, in the tiller seat, you didn't sit at the back of the ladder. You sat in between the rails of the ladder. And then when you got to put the apparatus to work, you'd pull out the steering wheel and put it in a socket. And then you'd flip up the seat and then get out of the way. And then they had these two powerful coil springs that when they stepped on a lever, this thing would shoot up and then they'd use the momentum to uh, elevate, rotate and extend. Uh, but it got the job done. And the, uh, the reasoning behind this was um, it worked better in freezing weather. That was, <laughs> that was, uh, but um, he was on truck three and that, that downtown, it was at Erie and Wells, but the pride of his life was squad two. That was where he, that was in Skid Row. And at the time uh, they had the largest number of fire fatalities for civilians uh in the industrial industrialized countries within their district, because it was like I say, it was like Skid Row and uh, flop houses, flop houses, just drunks that would uh, pay whatever they could and flop down on a mattress with chicken wire in between between and uh, God, were they busy? I cherish I have two log books, chief uh, back. And I, I, I think that our department doesn't use logbooks anymore. And I think that's a shame. It is. You come in in the morning, you get yourself a cup of coffee, you go and you see what the other shift had done. Okay. Who's working, all that. That's all gone now. It's been gone for several years. I've got two logbooks, one from 1950 and one from 1951. And this is back when people used a fountain pen. They were like calligraphers. It looked like they, oh. John Hancock was signing that thing. And then they had a blotter so you wouldn't smear the ink. And uh, to see my dad's um, uh, notations. Now, remember, no radio. No radio. So uh, and we talk about writ teams and tactical reserves. No, that sun's in the way. Uh, <clears throat> That's what a squad did. Narrative after narrative. Squad responded on box such and such reported to the chief of the 5th Battalion, ordered to return to quarters. And over, But then there would be ones that would squad reported to the 6th Battalion, 
order to stretch a second line off of engine 39 or order to take a, uh, a 35 foot ladder off of truck uh, seven and raise it to help uh, engine 39 get, get down from the third floor. Uh, they, were the, they were the tactical reserve. They also um, had, uh, it was a, they had a sedan cab auto car, badass looking, just beautiful rig. And I cannot believe somebody didn't try to preserve one of these things. So they would run inhalator calls. They were inhalators. So they would put an ENJ resuscitator on people, put them in a Stokes basket, put them on the squad bench out in the weather, you know, cover them up, and take off to the hospital and do that dozens of times a day. And uh, he liked the the pace. He liked the, the being busy like that. And he had worked with a bunch of guys that ended up being very, very high, uh, Quinn, Robert J. Quinn. My dad would drive him when the um, his regular driver was off. And it, I think believe he was the battalion chief of the 6th Battalion at the time. And uh, so my dad was friends with Quinn. Uh, I met Commissioner Quinn. In fact, I met Ronald Reagan uh, with some of your co-workers. Uh, from Fairfax after we came back from the uh, Armenian earthquake. I was more excited about meeting Commissioner Quinn than I was meeting the President of the United States because to me, he was the man and the persona with the helmet, that ridiculous <laughs> beat up helmet. And um, he always managed to get a little dirt on his face before he got that interview, but <laughs> no question, he was a huge believer in physical fitness in the fire service. In fact, he didn't like fat guys. Two things that my dad told me, the commissioner hated, long hair and fat guys. And the commissioner way up into his seventies was a, uh, a, an avid handball player. That's how these guys got in shape. And the handball started because what are you going to do with the hayloft? You know, we, we mechanized the apparatus. What are we going to do with the hayloft? Well, the handball court made a perfect hayloft. So, uh, he had a, he had a good relationship with, with the commissioner. He, you know, commissioner was a hard ass man. Uh, he did. The snorkel was his brainchild. And uh, when my dad was on snorkel one, uh, there were other snorkels at the time. But I remember having dinner one night, just vaguely remember, because I was just a little kid. And my dad's telling my mom, hey, I got I got a position at snorkel one. You're not going to have to worry about me anymore. Because I'm not going to be going in any more fire buildings. I'll be operating on the outside. Well, yeah, until a friggin' parapet wall came down on him. And those are some of the pictures that I sent you. He was as good as dead. And it took a while to read. Uh, yeah, let's see if we can get one of those pictures. There's my dad. And that's, that's later in his career. That's when he was uh, assigned at the airport to Engine 10. Yeah. Good picture of him. Now, that's the rig that I was on uh, when I first uh, got on Miami-Dade. Um, 
That's where my dad was standing at that turntable. And let me tell you the story. Yep. It, it, it's, I did not learn this story from my dad because he was a humble guy. I learned it from guys that had worked with him. And the, Chicago used to be really liberal with uh, firemen's sons riding on the apparatus. So as long as you could take the smoke, you know, in the 70s. So I came into this firehouse. I'm going to ride on this company. Guy says, what's your name? I said, Bill Gustin. Your dad saved my life. And the story is, is that they're operating in a, um, an alley in the collapse zone. And they like that short wheelbase snorkel because they could get it into tight spots. Uh, my dad seldom took time in the basket. His job, as he saw it, was a supervisor. Stand back, watch the basket, watch the boom. Remember, you got to watch the elbow, too. And watches people, watch the wires. Now, there were no handy talkies. There was no PA system. And my dad, from where, his, where he was taking his stance, could see a crack developing the parapet up above the window where these guys are operating their, their, their deck gun up into the uh, penetrating the ceiling, getting water into the cock loft. And um, he's... Ooh. <clears throat> guys tell me everybody was rusted direction it was my dad jumped up on that turntable and swung the boom out of the way and then the whole whole wall if you go to another picture it was i i could see why they yeah i mean you, buried in bricks buried in that you see the fire escape uh the 443 phase uh commercial electric service uh, uh, a utility pole down on him uh they had to wait for commonwealth edison to cut the power and uh, they figured he was dead. Now, what saved him? His chin strap. Now, they don't use chin straps very much in Chicago. Uh, but my dad believed in chin straps. And uh, the kitchen experts advised my dad, ah, don't wear that chin strap. You'll fall through a floor and strangle. Well, uh, and you know the chicken ex uh, kitchen experts we're talking about, don't you, Chief? Yes, sir, I do. You've got, you've, got, you've got your kitchen financial advisors, marriage counselors, sex therapists. Uh, you just bought a new F-150. Well, the experts could tell you where you could have got it for $500 less. Any kind of advice or problem can be held by the experts in the kitchen. Well, the experts told him, don't use the chin strap. He told me, Bill. The first brick would have knocked my helmet off and the rest would have killed me. But what really made him come back are two things. One, he was in excellent physical condition. And the other is, as we say here in Miami, he had the corazon. That's heart. He okay. had the desire. He had the desire to come back. He could have gone out on a disability. But he wanted to come back to this job that he loved. And he actually went back to a busier snorkel than he, uh, than he left. He went to snorkel, too. And, um, and, man, this is during the war years where these uh, industries were moving out of the city in droves. Chief Riley, I, you know, we're talking about massive timber buildings now. That's uh, a topic. In, in my experience, and I'm a historian, 
So I, a lot of my experience is vicarious. I don't remember a serious fire in a mill-constructed heavy timber building when it was occupied and operating. It's never then. There's no concealed spaces, and most of them had sprinklers. It's not until they're abandoned is when you get the fires. And they're intense fires because of the floors are soaked with years and years of machine oil. Uh, another thing that, that was common in Chicago were grain elevators. It, all up and down the uh, Chicago River on the South Branch. And they would go to these things and... Um, I can remember my dad saying, oh, man, we had it. It was tough last night. We scorched the boom. It just, man, we scorched that boom. <laughs> he was always a believer in the, one of the most strategic operating positions for a platform type apparatus like that is right at sidewalk level. Down low, get the stream up high. There were no books written on that at the time. That was just practical experience. And all right, there's there's a there is a the one on the left, the GMC with the bell, that was snorkel one. Then that was actually a tree trimming uh truck that they uh borrowed from the parks department. I understand they actually put it in service while it was still green. And then uh, some of the other snorkels at their time, every every other one was on a Ford chassis. Oh, except for the snorkel squads. A couple of those were on uh, inter, in, international chassis. But um, talk about being cold. Now, that is when my dad would take a position in the basket is to relieve, because there's nothing colder than being soaking wet and being up on the, in that basket <laughs> in the dead of winter. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, he loved those snorkels and, um, before he got on the snorkel, when he, when he made Lieutenant, uh, he got promoted out of squad two as a fireman. And then when he made t Lieutenant, he went in the fire prevention bureau. That's what you did. And he didn't like it, but in retrospect, he tells me it made him a much better fire officer. He could decipher an enunciator panel. He could tell if a dry pipe valve had been tripped. Uh, he could reset an alarm system. Uh, he knew how far apart stairways had to be because of the code. And um, and I see that today. Um, I never spent any time in the Bureau. Yeah. So I was behind the eight ball. And I had to educate myself. Because it is our job to know these systems. Yeah, it's not as sexy as firefighting, but in a sense, when I talk to sprinkler fitters, by the way, I got I got some advice for you, Chief. Oh, don't challenge a sprinkler fitting to an arm wrestling contest. <laughs> he'll, have, he'll have you crying for your mama. So when I greet these guys, I say, greetings, firefighters. And they look at me funny. We're not firefighters. I said, oh, yes, you are. And when it comes to fighting fire in high rise building and big box structures, you do a one hell of a better job than the fire department can do. Because the only thing that's going to really control that is a sprinkler system. And we have bamboozled 
for lack of a better term, I could think of other words, the public into thinking that we can climb 40 stories with 100 pounds of equipment, stretch a hose line from a standpipe and put their fire out in a timely fashion. And it ain't so. <laughs> it just ain't so, bro. If the spring, if the elevators are out, we are in big trouble, big trouble. So, so Bill, um, it begs the question, and I don't think I've ever asked you. Then, what? Why are you in Miami Dade, not in Chicago Fire Department? Uh, my dad talked me out of it. Uh, what? what I did is I was a fireman in Naperville, and I was on the list for Chicago. Mm-hmm. And uh, on a whim, I visited my then girlfriend whose family had been transferred to Miami and just a coincidence that they were giving an exam for the Dade County Fire Department. And I took it, not thinking anything of it. That was like in December, late December, 1977. (laughs) By March the 6th, I'm in their academy. So when I got called for Chicago, I took Chicago's test in 1974. I got called in November of 78. But by that time, I had all the fire I wanted right there at at Station 2 and Battalion 5. And uh, we burned down every wood frame house that there was in the neighborhood. And so we had plenty, plenty of work. So uh, I just stayed there in Miami-Dade. And my dad said, it's probably better for you. And in many ways, it was. This job has given me so many opportunities. I mentioned the... uh, the earthquake in Armenia. Uh, I was with you guys, our uh, Fairfax guys, who I'm still very close friends with after all these years. Uh, I was a member of the international uh, response team. We were the first urban search and rescue team ever requested by the Soviet Union to go behind the Iron Curtain. And that was in 1988. And then in 1990, we flew to um the Philippines. We, we flew in a C-141, uh, a Vietnam-era cargo plane. Uh, not exactly a first-class accommodation, believe me. We, got, we flew from Travis Air Force Base in California all the way to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines and got refueled over the Pacific twice with a C-141 um, tanker, one from Guam and one from the Philippines. Okay. Look at that handsome looking guy right there. <clears throat> I have to tell you, uh, that's I still got that helmet. And my dad retired that helmet. And then I had it sent back to Karen's in 1973. And they put a new eagle on it. And uh, either my head swole or the helmet shrunk. I think a little <laughs> bit of both. But, you know, I didn't have a a chin strap there. And I was just a cocky young tiger that, um, by the way, that's a survive air um, breathing apparatus that did not have a low air alarm chief. It had a reserve. So when you got down to a quarter of a tank, you'd flip over this lever for the reserve. Now what happens if the reserve was already tripped. Then you just run out of air. Can you imagine that today? No, God, no. Yeah, survive. They still make them. Now, that, 
Hey, let's see. Okay, so we saw that. That. Okay, this is this is just, and this this is the way I fought fire in the seventies, and it was all a matter of how much smoke you could take. Um, we kind of emulated Chicago. Chicago didn't have breathing apparatus except for the squads until the seventies. So you just took. When I rode with Chicago, uh, if they had masks. I never saw them use them and they were in boxes. You know, they were not in compartments. They weren't in the jump seats or anything. You just took smoke, but it was a different kind of smoke, brother. It was a different kind of smoke. And, and it's just like cheap. I'll give you, give you an example. When I was a kid growing up in Wheaton, Illinois, if you had a fire in your house, you'd call up the fire department a police dispatcher would answer the call. He'd set off a bell in the volunteers' homes and blow a big siren on the top of the firehouse. And the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker would all come from their jobs or come from home, blue light on their car, get to the fire station, get on the apparatus and get to your house in 25 minutes. And there was something to save. And they usually would put that fire out with a booster line. Well, what's the difference? Well, we know what the difference is. Yeah. Back then, just about everything was made out of wood, wool, cotton, jute, coil springs, steel coil springs instead of plastic foam. So our world has changed. And uh, you can't take that smoke anymore. It's, and if you can, it's going to hurt you. Oh. It's going to yeah. hurt you. And <laughs> my my dad used to say, oh, yeah, best thing, Bill, you get a good snotty mattress in the morning because it'll it'll work up the snot and the tears. You'll be able to take the smoke better the rest of the day. <laughs> What's he doing? He's lining his mucous membranes with with mucus. But that was the mentality. And uh, oh, I asked him one time, Bill uh, uh, or dad. We were looking at Clark Gable or Cary Grant. Hey, Dad, how come those guys, they look so good, and they're a lot older than you. Why do they look so good? And he says, eh, they haven't spent much time in a smoky basement. <laughs> that was the, to him, that was the worst. Smoky basement. So when uh so I take it, you know, because today, I mean, obviously, I think you probably even know from Florida, I mean, there's so many fire departments hiring. So you were on the list for almost four years in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. A uh, lot of lawsuits, a lot oh. of lawsuits. Hey, look at that stud. Hey, uh, let me just go down the list here. Sure. The guy on the left is now a uh, deputy and he is a fireman. Uh, we were in a. Uh, one fire in a single family home, a big one. And uh, I hear him, can't see him, but I can hear him. I got one, lead me out, lead me out. And I remember grabbing the back of his breathing apparatus and leading him out. He was pulling a lady. And the guy next to him is uh, a lieutenant on our medic unit. And our medic unit in Miami-Dade is staffed by an officer and two firefighters and has every truck tool other than ladders. And uh, he ended up being my battalion chief for about 15 years. Uh, third guy there was a firefighter 
left us, went to Cincinnati, and then not sure where what happened after that. Uh, Willie Lattimore, one of the smart, sharpest, strongest. He was my senior guy, the guy at the door. Remember, there was no radios. So there would be an occasion when I felt the hose being pulled back. It's because he saw something. Either we passed the fire or there was vent point ignition. Uh, the driver, J.T. Smith, you'd think he had ice water in his veins. He was so calm and methodical. Me, when I was a young stud, and Frank Levitt, who was a, a very talented finished carpenter and, and a great fire officer, ended up retiring as a, um, a, um, a captain. Now, I spent most of my career on almost all of it on an, an apparatus with it's an engine, but with a 50 or 60 foot aerial device. It used to be the telesquirt made by Snorkel bomb-proof, bomb-proof, indestructible, no electric, all hydraulic. Oh, man, that thing was so reliable and took such a beating. And uh, But we had to have a, a device that we could get the nozzle down, tip of the, the boom down, and the nozzle up. And uh, Chicago still does that with their snorkels and tower ladders. You know, New York does too. And I'm certain that you spec your platform apparatus with that same capability. I'm going to guess. Yep. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, that's that's one of the most strategic positions for that. So what is uh, what is the current um, number of members in Miami-Dade? Uh, we're, now? Getting, we're getting close to 3,000. We got okay. a class of 56 right now. And what was it when you started? We had two classes side by side because the union was pushing. It was Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.